welcome to the Delling Pod. And I know I always say I'm excited about this week's special guest, but I really am. Before I introduce him, though, I want to remind you about our excellent sponsors. We are sponsored at the Delling Pod, that's the Royal We, by two gold companies. There's the Pure Gold Company, which delivers bullion to your door or stores it for you in a vault. Or... There's monetary metals where you you own gold, um, but you earn interest on it. It's a different it's a different business model. One way m- might suit you, the other other way might suit you. There are advantages and disadvantages to both. Anyway, have a look at them. You've got the details below in in the blurb below this podcast. If you want to sponsor my podcast, and I would highly recommend it, if you want to advertise your wares, whatever they might be, but, but whether it's your uh, holiday home or whether it's um, some other service you provide, uh, you can do so. Just contact me at jamesdellingpole at icloud.com and um, we can talk about it. Uh, you'll reach about 40,000 or more dedicated listeners and viewers and um, it, you'll have things in common with them, I, I assume. Anyway... On to this week's special guest, Alexander Little. Alexander, this is the first time we've met each other, uh, the first time I've even known what you look like. And you contacted me out of the blue. And I think if I hadn't been who I am, I might have found you a bit mad um, because you've got this thesis. I think a lot of people would just go, yeah, it's a bit esoteric. Um, but actually, I'm really excited. I'm really, really looking Good. forward to what you have to tell me mm. about T.S. Eliot. Yeah. And I know that lots of people, because it's always a problem with cultural issues. On when, Whenever you broach the arts, particularly the high arts on mm. podcasts, it's quite a turnoff for a lot of people because yeah. not everyone's read T.S. Eliot, for example, let alone mm. is, 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 is really familiar with, with his work. And a lot of people will be going, well, why should we care? So before we, before be we move on, on, can we talk a bit about T.S. Eliot and how he's been sold to us? Yeah. OK, so. I mean, he's supposed to be the greatest poet of the 20th, of the 20th century, isn't sure, he? Sure, that's the niche the he language. probably occupies. Would and a real say? sort of intellectual heavyweight. He's the sort of kingpin of the poetry order uh of the last hundred years and he's uh probably the the most heavyweight yeah. and difficult poet that ever lived he sort of occupies that um that niche or that identity i would say and so that's very exclusive um and people sometimes ask me what drew me to t.s Eliot, and i don't think anything did draw me to T.S. Eliot. I was, I didn't like T.S. Eliot, but I was led by a professor at Oxford, I think talked into, um, and maybe even tricked into studying T.S. Eliot. And I trusted him. And then he dropped a bombshell and he was probably trying to expose something without getting implicated himself. And I'm not quite sure of his motives exactly. Um, it's taken me years to sort of gather the maturity to be more closer to his age to understand what he was trying to do and so uh i come at it from a very different angle the opposite angle from what most people do and so what i learned really was something that debunks that that stuff well yeah okay uh, before before we go on and you tell me your story 
I, mm. I just want to just establish more who, ground who with, was and, with, that, with T.S. Yeah. Eliot. So I remember when I first studied T.S. Eliot, and it was in, in the sixth form. It might have been even in the Oxbridge class at my, mm. at my school. Because in those days, you used to stay on an extra term and do and do Oxbridge. But certainly, when we studied T.S. Eliot, it was like you'd yeah. finally arrived as yeah, yeah, an English okay. student. You were dealing with the big boys stuff now, and it was complicated. Yeah. And, and yeah. You, you felt like you, you'd finally sort of broached Everest. Did you, did you have that same experience? Well, I didn't study it at school, but I experienced it at university, and it, and it was like that. So... This, what I have to say, will probably annoy people who are into T.S. Eliot. Um, it's a sort of like Mensa club, if, if you know what I mean. You know, people who are into T.S. Eliot think they're very clever. I do and, know what you mean. And that's how it's introduced to people. So a lot of people are put off, except those clever people in the but, clever sorry, part. I, I, the clever you're, you're sounding quite faint. Uh, that's not good. You're sounding quite faint. It, does it sound better you, uh, is, now? Is there any way you can make your microphone? That's much better, yes. Okay, so to, to so, say that again, about explain your point about Mensa. Well, I think that, that with T.S. Eliot, what you find is that people feel excluded and don't like it who, uh, in the general public, perhaps, but the people who, who feel that they're clever, um, they find a vindication in T.S. Eliot and they attach, associate with him. And that's the sort of... Uh, niche that that Eliot occupies, and that's how you're usually introduced to him. For example, studying English literature at university, um, you know, you're studying poetry, and that's usually about emotion and uh, creativity. And then you suddenly come across um, T. S. Eliot, and it's like you're studying science or maths or something. And there are these footnotes everywhere, and there are these uh, references to other works, and you. Uh, people who enjoy Eliot who feel that in his work there are references, you know, they can sort of name drop authors who he refers to with his literary allusions and quotations which are in yeah. his poetry. Um, so, so you know, it's for, for people who, who want to show they're clever, they might identify with T.S. Eliot and quote T.S. Eliot and, and, and that's where he often comes up. And of course that rubs other people up the wrong way because it seems like some people showing off their, their knowledge of um, culture and art and literature, uh, so it's, it's that's that's probably yeah, how. But he, how he's he is. I mean, to, most to be people. fair, let, let's try and be fair to him as far as we can. He mm. is quite quotable. So I will mm. show you fear in a handful of dust. I, I, I should have been a pair of ragged ragged claws scuttling across the floors of silence silent seas. Uh, April is mm. the cruelest month. All this stuff, which which. Which we do when we're younger, when we're younger and, and we're excited about English literature and we, we've decided, we, we're excited, we've, we've discovered this stuff mm. and we think, well, I've, I've now got some Eliot to quote. Now, what, what's hard for me now, now that I'm much more sceptical of, of the world, is, is this stuff genuinely good or mm. is it stuff that you quote in order to show how literate and uh, uh, educated you are? Um, I think it's a deep one because Eliot was definitely brilliant at coming up with 
catchy phrases. He was a brilliant poet of his own right, but he went through a stage of of building poetry out of plagiarized lines or speaking in the voices of other poets yeah. and writers um, as a voice for himself uh, and creating essentially fashionable modern art that was authentic in itself because it carried his voice and there was something authentic in it, but it looks like literary in, intelligent gobbledygook to the outsider. And I think there's a strong element of fraud to it, but we'd have to go into that specifically what that is and how that was set up with Ezra Pound on board and what, I mean, even the fraud goes over people's heads. And I think, you know, pe people who um, like to quote right. and that kind of thing, they're not, they haven't even got to the start of the maze. At the start of where it gets interesting and what's okay. going on. I, I want you to take me through this stuff step by step rather than mm. jumping the gun, because I think it's yeah. really important to get the viewers and listeners on board, those who haven't yeah. done Eliot. So mm. T.S. Eliot, his most famous work is The Wasteland, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you want me to say something about which, that? Which appeared in, in when? What year? Yeah. So The Wasteland is... 1922? 1922. So almost exactly 100 years old. And there was actually the centenary of that was last year. And it has enough of a reputation that there should be a centenary of a poem. And, it sh and that, that would uh, have a bit of coverage in the media. And there was sort of Ray Fiennes doing something from his drama. And then there was a documentary called The Hyacinth Girl uh, on the BBC at 9 p.m., you know, primetime spot, you know, investigating the mystery of the wasteland. Um, yeah. So this, this hundred-year-old poem... I, I suspect your first impression would be, well, what the hell is going on here? Like, not for me. It's got quotations or it breaks into German near the beginning. It, it's not really intelligible. Um, although there are passages of lines which might be almost mesmerizing. It's sort of broken up into different uh, sections, which uh, here's a monologue here and there's something going on here. And, and, and it, it's not written to be legible in the ordinary narrative sense that you'd read a story and then you have to and then you'll only be introduced to it in a classroom context so then you'll be told something which won't necessarily make sense to you and you'll have to may perhaps pretend to sort of get it to not feel that you're you don't get it and it you might be told that it's impersonal and is that even a word what is that in terms of poetry and it's it's not about any of the conventional things that poetry is supposed to be about, but no one seems to be able to put a finger on exactly what what the point of it all is, except that it's great. You take that for granted because it's gone down as great. Um, and it's there to be studied because it's got a lot of references to other works, perhaps. But there's no... One of the definitions of that poem is that it's somehow ambiguous and you're not really supposed to look for an answer or you don't get it perhaps or that might be um taking away from its greatness um reductive somehow so you're looking at this 12 page poem in five parts uh which uh has um textual notes uh by the author uh referring you to certain texts and and um 
uh, I suppose, acknowledging some of the quotations that are in it. Um, and then you might recognize some of the quotations. And I guess you might feel pleased with yourself if you did, but you might not if you're, you know, just studying in school. Um, or even if you're quite well read, you might You'd not. You'd feel very smug, wouldn't you? You might feel smug, you know, and, and you, you know, maybe you're justified in that. And then you might feel, oh, I understand where he's coming at from. But the thing is, you know, it's so it's almost so limitlessly ambiguous, especially if you don't go into it in a forensic way and really figure out what that is. There are so many levels on which you can interpret it freely and people establish, I think, a, um, a connection with it that, that f they feel is violated, perhaps, if, if it's analysed in that forensic way, because it might take away from what you've projected onto it or what you've taken from it, um, what it means to you. So it's kind of yeah. sacred Can I just, just ask you something? Mm. The, I've got this theory on the wasteland, okay. which is that wherever it's taught, the default assumption is this is a preeminent work of lit literature. This is greatness. And your mm. job is not to decide whether or not it's great. That has already been decided for you. Mm. Um, it is part of the pantheon. And your job is merely to gaze on it with a mixture of awe and curiosity as you as you examine the richness of the sources that the, the, the bits of sanskrit and the references to antony and cleopatra the barge she she sat in and the and the references to uh, to webster um mm. oh keep the dog far hence that's friends friends to man and so on and, and, and so forth so it, it's it's a bit like a sort of a literary wank fest yeah. Um, where, where you just sort of congratulate yourself on your good taste and your good fortune in being exposed to this work. So was, was, this, was this the case from the moment it came out? Was, was everyone going, wow, this is the business? No, certainly not. I think it was a generational oh. thing. So um, the older generation despised it because it undermined everything they thought poetry was on purpose. So it was very radical when it was published, you know, this new form of poetry that no one can make head or tail of. And there's a sort of um, amused admiration in the early reviews uh, by good reviewers who sort of say, well, is this a joke? And it's quite clever. I think the cleverest things that were ever said about it were in the first reviews. And after that, it just all goes, you know, becomes worse and worse until it's a, a, almost a farce um, as as people follow the directions in the textual notes, which were a joke, and take them seriously. And then Eliot becomes established in the canon. And uh, a, a misunderstanding then ah. presides and still prevails. Um, but yeah, at first it was a radical change. Um, okay. And uh, not, not, it was almost like considered by the people who wanted it to come through wanted the the changes that pound was promoting and the modernists were promoting at that time these were the the new poets well, we'll, we'll of the 20s pound in a second because yeah. you, you can't just drop them in there yeah yeah people don't know Maybe. who pound is i'm sure but uh... hardly anyone knows who pound is well yeah but agreed. before so, we come on to him there, there the, were the people, people who, who were ready were, for it who were saying who, who oh this was, is an immediate skeptical. masterpiece yeah there were people who were who were you know there's a battle it becomes a culture war really, in the, in the literary world, because there are people who are backing this kind of verse, and then the wasteland becomes sort of the, the, um, 
the cry, the war cry of that movement and, and people rally around that. And there are people resisting it. And I guess the forces of change and um, originality uh, won that and there was nothing anyone could do about it. But it takes a while for that to, to take effect. So Elliot has a delayed uh, effect where his reputation grows and grows over the decades. Um, and it's d diminished now and he's forgotten, but he's okay. as a popular poet, you know. Have we heard of any, uh, any of the people who were against him? I mean, any, any big names that we still remember? Um, there might have been, I need, I need to, I would need to go and to be sure that I get that right. Um, they would, okay. they wouldn't be huge names, not, not like but, names that anyone's heard of, but, but literary people would, would have heard of those, some of them, you know, but, but basically, okay. no, I mean, they would have been like fusty reviewers a little bit compared with giants. They weren't giants. Hmm. Okay. Uh, but the the trenderati, the people who were looking for the the neophiliacs, were a bit like the kind of people who championed Stravinsky's right rights of right of spring, or or whatever. The, because the same things were happening in in mm. in music and in art, weren't they? The, 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 and I would the say, yeah, the, the poetry, the, 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 the poetry I mean, scene the was the last. We, there. We, I think there's a bit of delay. Again? The poetry scene were the last to in the in the modernist revolution. I would say the, lit, the literary scene came after music and art. So I mean, Eliot was walking into a space that was was already the you know being trailblazed. So it wasn't that much resistance left. You know what I mean? Right. It was the scene was ready for it. And Pound and Eliot, as we'll come on to, Pound, was he? You know, they gave people what what the scene what it was ready for. So Eliot famously, well, famous to those who know anything about it at all, was a bank, worked in a bank. Mm. He had the most boring job in the world, probably because he felt that by having a boring job, uh, it would be a contrast. It, it would leave him free to, to, to let his creative side flourish, untainted by, by his, his job. Um, was, at this point in life, at 1922, was he... I mean, was he, how old was he? Early thirties. It's about 33. Um, he, uh, his story was he, he was from Harvard. He'd, um, he's American actually. He's born in St. Louis. He went to Harvard yeah. and he was going to become a, um, uh, a Harvard professor of philosophy. He was doing a doctorate and he, uh, moved over to Oxford to pursue that. And he'd never been published. This was in about 1914 uh, when he moved to Oxford. He'd never been published. And he would there he met this poet, Ezra Pound, who was at the middle of the art scene, who, who um, took him under his wing. And he started Eliot, got him published in 1917 for the first time um, with proofrock and other observations. You quoted, um, I should have been a pair of ragged claws. And the other line that's famous maybe is, I've measured out my life with coffee spoons. So the, this this first collection that he published in 1917 later became a classic. But Eliot wasn't heard of in 1922 to a wide audience, you know, just just the literary set in London. Um, he, he, he'd he written those poems quite a lot earlier that were in that 1917 volume. So he'd waited a long time and he'd almost given up. He was discovered by Pound. 
Pound took up his career and became his promoter. And um, Pound was promoting a lot of poets and pushing this modern movement. And he sort of was the guy who would make Eliot into the poster boy of that movement. So Eliot publishes in 1917. Um, he's not going to have a big audience at that point. Then he publishes a second collection in 1920. And it's still, you know, bespoke modern poetry that not many people are reading. And then um, the big breakthrough is The Wasteland and it's promoted as that. And, it, and um, you know, he's, his career is stage managed to put him on the scene by Pound, uh, who knows the big names in literature and publishing. Um, and he's also working on James Joyce's Ulysses Pound at that time. So he, he takes Eliot under his wing and he promotes wow. him as, you know, the big thing. And he edits The Wasteland as well. It's, a, it's actually was a collaboration to begin with. And Pound hid his own role in that um, to, to help promote Eliot um, to the place where Pound thought he should be. Um, and just to help create this, to push through the movement and tag it, tag it to Eliot. And so um, in 1922, that was launched. And it actually really impressed a whole generation of younger younger people um, I mean, people were into poetry then, and it seemed to speak for people and in a way that's hard to understand now, and I have difficulty fully understanding, it, it sort of um, tapped into something, some collective consciousness or something, and it, it became a hit, a genuine hit. Um, and then over time, more and more people discovered it, and Eliot became a household name, like a, a Picasso of poetry, a Picasso in the literary world, you know, a big name a big famous guy whose name is up in lights a household name because of the wasteland and then he followed it up with some other poems well that... i suppose i i suppose the publication date of the wasteland is indicative of something that we're, we're, we're four years after the end of the first world war which must have messed with everyone's heads in a big way and so they were looking for something that would take them away from this, that would make them understand the world in a different way, that make, would make sense of things, maybe making sense of things through the senseless. Maybe, maybe mm. the, the, the thing about the waste and that appealed for them, to them was that it was so obscure and, and mm. didn't try and sort of impose too much meaning. And maybe, maybe that, I, I don't know. I mean, the, the, anything's things are possible. Or... It could just have been a fabrication, wasn't it? I mean, the, um, it was dedicated. Was it dedicated to to Ezra Pound, Emilio Fabro? That yeah. was that's what he what he said, wasn't it, at the beginning? So, so, so Ezra Pound, who I never really kind of looked into very much because Elliot was bigger, kind of thing. Ezra Pound sounds like the real the real creator of this whole scene. He was obviously something special. Who yeah. who was he? Okay, so. There's one thing you mentioned I'd just quickly cover before I talk about Pound there. You said uh, that it, it it must have been doing something at the time that appealed to people. And I think here's where what gets lost soon after a poem is published is that it's actually hypnotic in a way and um, like a work of magicianship. It taps into the way people think at the time and... Um, it's like a piece of theatre that works like an illusion that works in the theatre at the time. And that's what it did to people. 
because it accused people of having the same thoughts as Eliot was and drew them into this spell, right? So that gets lost over time and it becomes this literary fossil that we talked about what, how you were introduced at school, which was nothing like the way it had an impact to begin with, but that gets lost. Now, as for Pound, Pound was the mover and shaker. He was this guy from Idaho who just somehow got out of a small town in Idaho went to Europe and decided that he was going to be at the heart of the poetry movement. And he just um, was a sort of man of effect. Uh, he just kind of got himself into the middle of the literary scene, found poets who were good, thought he could see who was good. And then he just sort of sacrificed himself to sort of help their careers get going. Now, was his own poetry good? Not really. Like when you read Pound, it's, there are isolated lines but a lot of it's sort of like, well, later he went mad and, and you can tell it's, it's not even a healthy mad. Um, and it's not, it's not quality writing in, in large passages. It's just, it's a lot of quotation stuff that you would recognize from Eliot, but without the hypnotic appeal. So was Pound never achieved the, the popularity of Eliot. However, he helped in a way, he basically gave Eliot his own crown. So he gave Eliot the crown of the pioneering modern artist, whereas Eliot really wasn't really trying to do that until Pound got hold of him. And then he encouraged Eliot, and Eliot, I get, possibly in a way, was was moving into that space because he was so ambitious that he wanted to be a great poet. And Pound helped Eliot to become the poster boy of Pound's movement. Um, and Eliot, somewhat okay. cynically, I think, occupied that role, which he didn't even believe in. And Pound took over, and Eliot didn't even know what the finished version of The Wasteland was going to be. So Pound was actually, took all these drafts of poetry that Eliot had written, and he chopped them up into a new form, half its length, and realized this is going to be the classic that people are going to, that's going to work, you know, within this space that in this movement we're launching. And he found the good bits, essentially the bits that were authentic, cut away the experimental yeah. guff and then sort of promoted Eliot. And then Eliot had to live with the result. And that where that becomes, we'll maybe get into later, where that we'll get into later is where that becomes difficult for Eliot is that Pound puts Eliot in a compromising situation because he puts out his, his Uranian poetry um, or gay poetry uh, cuts out the fluff and leaves the stuff and he promotes that. And now Eliot has to make sure that people never actually figure out what that's all about. Ah, so I, I, I've looked at the, the, the first drafts of the, of the wasteland. I mean, it's, 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 mm. maybe garbage is too strong a word, but there's, there's no doubt that, that without, um, pounds excisions it would mm. just be uh, unreadable wouldn't it, it the, the pound, yeah, pound kind of took a lot of boring of stuff and and and, mm. and and made it into the great yeah but so, so but do you think that you, when you're talking about the uranian stuff you're saying that pound spotted within this poem this these gay motifs which which Eliot had sought to bury in a, in a mass of verbiage and, and, and Pound mm. saw through that and, and, and made it clearer than it would have been. 
I don't think he made it clear because nobody could else could see it. But Pound basically Pound right. Pound saw. He right. looked at the whole poem and he said, "No, well that's that's crap, crap, crap." He got rid of all that, you know, this extraneous stuff, and he kept the stuff that that was good art that mattered to Eliot, and the stuff was autobiographical, and Eliot had had to express himself in a suppressed way, um, an artistic way. And it was Eliot's story, his struggle, that he kept. But he wasn't, Pam wasn't keeping it for that, for any particular reason, except what was good and what was authentic. And it was quite slapdash the way they did it. And they were like, well, this is what's left. And, you know, you can see from their letters that Eliot sometimes was like, why are you keeping that? Shouldn't I keep that? I don't want to leave that. And Pam's like, no, do this, this, this. And Eliot sort of goes, all right. And then they dare to do that. And then what's most interesting is that it wasn't even Eliot's poem until the end. It was kind of, they, they, it's not clear whether it was ever going to be just Eliot's poem. I think they started off by working out maybe it was a joint thing and there'd be some of Pound's writing in it. And they even had the poem right. Sage Homme, which gives away the key. Um, they had that as by Pound. That was going to be part of the Wasteland. But then Pound said, um, actually, don't use this with Wasteland. It won't work. It doesn't fit. You can... You can tack them onto a collected audition or publish them somewhere they'll be decently hidden and swamped by the bulk of accompanying matter. So they were going to take this, these poems that by pound and publish them somewhere else, but leave the wasteland independently. And in that, that poem, Sage Homme, it's a play on the French word Sage Femme, which means midwife. And so in that poem, Pound is the male midwife who performs a caesarean operation on T.S. Eliot, who's pregnant with poetry by the Uranian muse. And that Uranian was the word for gay then. So it's a kind of little riddle, Sajon. And he says, right, you know, and, and, he, and, and then they, but it wasn't going to be completely hidden, but it shows that, that Pound was collaborating on the wasteland. And then he, he salvaged the good stuff, which was Uranian or, you know, it was whether you want to look at whatever way you want to look at it, it was, Eliot's life and the valid stuff from his life that had inspired the poetry that remained. Right. And a lot of other experimental stuff went out the window um, and this authentic stuff remained. And then it was published and people then, well, Eliot turned that, that into a puzzle anyway. He wrote it kind of like a puzzle and lured people in with the explanatory notes, which which gave people clues and misdirection. So, of course, people then try to figure out what the wasteland's about, and that's dangerous for Eliot because as time goes on, that subject becomes even more criminalised. And so um, people just get the wrong end of the stick and, you know, no one's ever going to figure it out, you know, once once you pull that. Yeah. So and, and until I spoke to you, Alexander... I had no idea that T.S. Eliot was essentially gay. Mm. And I don't think that many people anywhere in the world are aware of this because we know about his two marriages. Mm. And, and he was married, oh, he married to Valerie second time round. Did he have a first wife before that? He married he late did. in life, didn't he? Yeah, so with T.S. Eliot, I would say it's quite possible... One funny way you might say, thing about T.S. Eliot you might say is that he's probably the first gay man to be out during his lifetime and then go back into the closet after his death 
due to the mistakes of biographers and critics and teachers. I mean, I think people sort of knew in his lifetime and the way things were dealt with then was discretion. Mm -hmm. Um, or there were rumors or he was, you know, people knew around him certainly. And, but now less people know than, than before. And it's sort of been lost. Um, or, I mean, he was definitely thought that he'd be discovered and, you know, but, you know, here is here you have with TSL, you really have like the LGBT landmarks that are not recognized, which acknowledge the obsession with that subject, which we have today. Um, it's such a big thing um, now, LGBT history. Um, but really, Elliot, his poetry yes, comes out of I haven't seen him that. celebrated as a gay hero. No, it's like, they, you know, you know, there's right. a lot of people, people feel and there's almost a backlash against um, uh, academia, uh, queer theory. Um, there's a lot of that happening. There's a backlash against it as well. But they, they seem to have, you know, claim people possibly who aren't gay and there are queer theories about or there's a fear that there's queer theories about people who aren't gay. But yet the real gay the ram of the flock is um it's not been recognized so it's a very very weird situation um and uh the the bewilderment yes. of the wasteland is is really comes down to having to express elliot having to express himself in a camouflaged way or being driven to that and he was sort of mad when he wrote it to be honest so um yeah, people wouldn't know. I mean, he, yeah. I mean what did people do well, then? They, they married women. They um, they had beards. I I, I think that's the term. Um, and Elliot was beards, yeah. worried yeah. about you know he arranged his reputation to his legacy, um, not to be disturbed and not to be found out because he 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 was a nun on the run, as it were. He was um, he he felt that history was right on his tail. Um, and that he would be discovered, and so he was very careful. Right. I mean, in 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 some ways, it matters not a jot whether T. S. Eliot was was gay or not. Mm. Um, but you've sort of hinted at, at at least one reason why it it, it does matter, which is that um, it's a sort of it's a misrepresentation of history. I mean, if you're going to study mm. somebody and if, if, if someone's biography affects their work mm. and you're denying this key biographical detail, then you're kind of missing a piece in the jigsaw, aren't you? I mean, yeah. if, if, as you suggest, the wasteland is really about gay sex and everyone else is saying, oh, no, it's about it's just a, a richly elusive, uh, fragmentary text about I don't know, then mm. they've got the wrong end of the stick, haven't they? Yeah, you so can never. How do you, you can know never. It's about. Mm. It's it's basically Uranian. Mm. So you can never. Un you just cannot literally understand the wasteland without understanding that it's about Eliot's life and his love for a man. You just will never ever understand it, and people are okay, okay. with that because they don't want to understand it. Maybe, I mean, they like it to be obscure, but you just can't because you just never will. And 
And so it's, I guess it's important on that level. You know, if you think the wasteland's important and you want to understand it, I guess it matters that he's gay. I mean, this is what I say. I mean, people are willing to disagree with me. I'm sure maybe they will, but most people won't have any idea. So they can go, you know, um, but it matters on that level, I guess. And I, I guess it matters as a cultural landmark or, I'm, you know, but then I guess it's important to establish well, where, why do I think that? And, you know, am I right or am I wrong? And, um, well, I think the only way to, to, I mean, first of all, as to, in terms of evidence, well, we have what I mentioned, Sajon, Pound and Elliot agree about what the poem is about. Um, Pound writes the, the, um, the poem Sajon. And he, he, he says in that, uh, that these are the poems of Eliot, Eliot by the Uranian muse begot. So they're begotten by the Uranian muse. And he says that the mother of the poems is T.S. Eliot and the muse is their sire. And then he writes, how did the printed infancies result from nuptials thus doubly difficult? If you needs must inquire, no diligent reader that on each occasion Ezra performed the Caesarean operation. So this playful poem um, uh, summer, was meant to summarize Pound's role in Eliot's career, and that was published in 1988, so um, in the letters of T.S. Eliot, and it's on, I think it's page 495, you can find it in the public record. Uh, it's never really been read somehow properly. It's often read as a, a reference to Pound's caesarean operation on the poem which doesn't really make sense because that's not literally what Sajon says and you can't really perform a caesarean on a poem you perform a caesarean on on a person and the person was the mother T.S. Eliot he doesn't have a vagina because men don't so he can't give birth to the poems of the gay muse the Uranian muse so Ezra performed the Caesarean operation. That's how they were given birth. And that's what the whole thing's about. So if you want to know what it's about, there it is. Eliot writes back, wish to print Caesarean operation in italics on front. So Pound, Eliot wanted to publish Sage Hom with the wasteland somewhere prominent as a tribute to Pound or because it was a good, fun poem. So they weren't even actually hiding it to begin with. But Pound advised otherwise. Mm. And... Elliot dedicated the wasteland to pound on the front eventually, and that was suppressed, Sajon. So there's a smoking gun if you need a smoking gun. But then when you go through the poem, once you get the thread, the trail, that it's a love poem for a man named Jean Verdinal, who was a French friend of Elliot's, who Elliot remained in love with after he was killed in the First World War. You then begin to realize that the poem is a kind of send up of Elliot's life being married to a woman but being in love with a dead man and it's the story of his life in London living a sort of pretense and finding his way to some kind of spiritual um on a kind of spiritual journey towards some kind of uh uh peace or harmony with himself while having a kind of breakdown in this life and struggling with coming to terms with what he is and try, you know, in conflict with himself. And um, there are all kinds of the illusions. When you look up all of these literary illusions that are in the poem, 
uh, they lead to passages where you can see why Eliot was rooting around in that chapter and he's expressing himself using the voices of other writers and he's constructed this poem and it's not even it's not even necessarily um hidden sometimes once you know that it's the subject it's it's not that subtle and i mean to to get people convinced i think i'd probably have to just show a couple of specific examples from the poem um and so you know the famous opening line april is the cruelest month well that could be about anything but it seems that Eliot sort of accidentally on purpose gave away the key in about 10 years after publishing the poem in his literary journal. Um, in the editorial column, he, he spoke of, a, of Paris before the First World War and dropped into, his, um, dropped into the editorial column that uh, he remembered a friend walking across a Paris park waving a branch of lilac a friend who was later, so far as I could discover, to be mixed with the mud of Gallipoli. It's quite a poetic way of saying, you know, something tragic. Um, and then when you look at the opening lines of The Wasteland, one scholar actually managed to sort of come up with a credible reading of the opening lines. April is the cruelest month, breeding lilacs out of the dead land, mixing memory and desire, stirring dull roots with spring rain. And then he, he realized, okay, so the April 1915 Battle of Gallipoli, where this friend died and was waving lilacs, gave him the insight into the opening of the wasteland that April was cruel um, because it brought back memories of this friend and, and buried sexual desires which were better off hidden. So April is the cruelest month, breeding lilacs out of the dead land, mixing memory and desire. So his desire comes back in, in spring, as is the poetic tradition, and his his object of desire has died in this tragic way. And once once this critic, John Peter, had picked that up, he then deciphered the wasteland, essentially, in a rudimentary way. And it's from that um, that you can then... Alex, I've... Mm. we'll have to hold that. I've, got to, I've mm. got to go to the station now. Are you going to be okay. around later on today for us to do sure. more? Sure, definitely. Or we can do it some other... Yeah, I'll, yeah, I'll be I've, around... I've got um, to go now. So okay. um, let's hope that... Um, Okay, well, we'll I'll, I'll, speak, I'll speak to you in a moment then. Um, okay, great. Uh, let's have a look. That is really getting on my tits. It's like I'm I'm interviewing across the Atlantic or something. I mean, it's not like a it, it, it's 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 not a conversation. It's like an interview, which I hate. Yeah. Um, but there we are. We, we, we can't do anything about technology. I could go technology. in the church and do it. Maybe no, it's got a quicker no, connection. No, I think we'll just, just do, do it. Do it. Do it. Yeah, but I don't know. We, we, we've got, we've, we've, we've recorded 40 minutes of stuff, so it's, let's not. And it will be um, like, uh, uh, so, sorry, yeah, go ahead. You were telling me, you were telling me about the, how do we know that this was this this chap who was killed in Gallipoli mm. Mm. was Eliot's lover? Well, we don't know that they were lovers. Actually, um, we know that they knew each other, and we know that from examining the poem, we can see that 
the poem is about Eliot's love for him. Um, but we don't know that there was some sort of consummated love affair. But what we do know about them is that they shared the, they lived in the same, uh, I guess it was a bed and breakfast kind of thing in as students uh, in Paris in 1910-11 when Eliot was a visiting student from Harvard and Verdinard was studying medicine. And um, they developed, a, we know the address that they lived at. Um, some academic research has been done into uh, Verdinard's life um, because a professor named John Peter in the 50s published an interpretation of the wasteland, which basically solved it um, to anyone who is objective. You could see, well, that's that's so coherent and it's got to be right, you know, um, and so simple. And he interpreted it as, as a sort of um, the life of some, through the eyes of someone who's um, distraught and is in love with someone who's died and is unhappy in their marriage and living in London and, you know, John Peter blew the lid on it, and then he sent the copy of his his uh, published literary essay to Eliot to push Eliot into acknowledging that that this was the answer, because um, that's what Peter needed to sort of get his career uh, confirmed, get the article confirmed. And he was a professor in in Canada who who was went on to some eminence, and he was he'd he'd um, been brought up under Levis, this top critic. Yeah, Cambridge. And Peter basically... Levis. Yeah, the Levis. Yeah. So all of these critics knew... Yes, when, Queenie, when, Queenie Levis. Is that what they called him? I don't know. Um, but um, but yeah. Peter basically sent that essay to Eliot, and then Eliot threatened to sue him unless it was suppressed, which is a remarkable move. And the essay was suppressed for 17 years. And it was published again after Eliot's death. And then Peter, and, and that was in 1969. And then Peter and his colleagues at the top of the industry just kind of like didn't mention it. They didn't, it didn't reach the public. They never, and Peter never tried to prove that he was right because it sort of debunked what the, the, you know, the academic order had written about the wasteland and it exposed everyone in a case of the emperor's new, new clothes. So Peter had deciphered the poem, but he'd never actually said that it was about Eliot's personal life. And Eliot just um, sort of preemptively cancelled the, suppressed the essay, um, which made it obvious that he had something to hide and it was about his personal life. I mean, it was very obvious when you read that essay um, that it's valid and it must be about T.S. Eliot. And so Peter opened the door and then slowly over time, there's been some research into who the real person who, who is the, the, um, the object of desire in the wasteland. And it's, it's Peter found the identity of Jean Verdinal because Eliot's first poetry collection, which we mentioned earlier, the 1917 poetry collection, um, is dedicated to Jean Verdinal, um, killed in the Dardanelles. So it's the same guy who was, I mean, the Dardanelles okay. on the site of Gallipoli. So Peter put two and two together, but he didn't mention that in his original essay. Actually, Peter was a also a, an attorney. 
a barrister. So he was maybe he was being careful not to identify Elliot with with the narrator of the wasteland for legal reasons. Um, but anyway, Elliot stomped on it, and um, it was a well known well known article in the literary in the academic community. Um, and it sort of trounces every other theory, really. But it's never really got round to people, um, you know, the general public. Uh, so, yeah, there's there's been some some scholarship looking into the life of of Jean Verdinal, and um, it's just not fully acknowledged his role in the wasteland. Um, although some people in the critical community might might say it say it is in order to dismiss that um no one's ever really just in a comprehensive way just line by line gone through the wasteland and and shown what it means to a you know student audience um and then there are complicated reasons for that as well probably we'd have to get into that as well well um, th this is where this is where it gets interesting, isn't it? Because, okay, so, so, so far as evidence that, that The Wasteland is a gay love poem or a suppressed gay love poem, mm. we've got the biographical detail that you just mentioned. Um, and, and there's more, there's letters. They were lovers, but yeah, there's something romantic well, in that. How, how should I give people an idea? So we mentioned that there was the centenary of The Wasteland and there was this documentary the hyacinth girl and in this documentary um put out by the bbc it explores Elliot's love affair with emily hale who is supposed to be the hyacinth girl according to an Elliot biographer um who worked on that documentary um the only problem with that is that there is no girl at all there is no hyacinth girl there's just two lines in the poem in inverted commas showing that they're reported speech where someone says you gave me hyacinths first a year ago they called me the hyacinth girl end quote yet when we came back late from the hyacinth garden your arms full and your hair wet i could not speak my eyes failed i was neither living nor dead looking into the heart of life the silence it's a sort of quotation followed by an internal monologue now Anyone could have said they called me the hyacinth girl. Doesn't actually say who that is or state their gender. Now you just assume that there's a girl because someone says they were called a girl. You'd be completely be forgiven for thinking it, it must be a girl. But hyacinths were actually um, a well-known and even risky symbol of gay love that derived from the myth of Hyacinthus and Apollo which is from Ovid. It's a, and, for example, Oscar Wilde, Hyacinthus and Apollo were lovers in Greek myth. And it was sort of the go-to um, myth from antiquity that, that gay culture could have in Victorian times. And so, for example, Oscar Wilde, who's probably the most famous example of, of, of that culture in late Victorian times, and the trial was a big scandal. Um, he, he was prosecuted partly on the evidence of a note comparing himself to Apollo and his lover, Lord Alfred Douglas Bosey, to Hyacinthus. And it was 
on the, partly on the basis of that note that the prosecution took into evidence that he was convicted of gross indecency, and that was covered in the papers. So um, Byron would call his boys hyacinths. So hyacinths were like a very prominent and even dangerous symbol of gay love. So in the wasteland, you have, you gave me hyacinths first a year ago, they called me the hyacinth girl. Yet when we came back late from the hyacinth garden, and Elliot capitalizes the hyacinth there for no reason. It's just to not to give away that it's about the myth. And that's not a girl talking. That's actually him. T.S. Eliot is the hyacinth girl. But like Kaiser Soze and the usual suspects, he just walks off and the usual suspects are left there with the critics talking about them. Emily Hale, whatever it takes that you want it to be, you know, to sell a newspaper. But no, it's T.S. Eliot and no one's even noticed. Probably T.S. Eliot. We can't prove it, but it's the man. Yeah. You know? And we know it's about Verdinal as well, because it th that Hyacinth Garden scene is framed by quotations from Wagner's opera Tristan and Isolde about doomed lovers. And there are seven letters from Verdinal to Eliot, which were published in 1988, along with Sajon later in the volume, um, in which Verdinal recommends that Eliot go and see Tristan and Isolde while he's in Munich and says it leaves you uh, prostrate with ecstasy and thirsting to get back to it again. They they shared a passion for the opera. They are the two people in the Hyacinth Garden. Eliot is probably the Hyacinth Girl. If you just read it grammatically, carefully, it's not necessarily hidden. There's no, there's maybe a bit of sleight of hand, but there's no fraud. You know, it doesn't say it's a girl. It's just a man saying, they call me the Hyacinth Girl. And when you know that, it reads better. And then this moment of ecstasy ends with, you know, it begins with this scene with a sailor singing in the mass from Tristan and Isolde and ends with Isolde's death. Those are the two um, quotations. So it's really talking about Eliot's own passion and ardor and the death of his beloved. And it's slightly disguised. And then Pound writes on the manuscript, which was hidden for 50 years, Marianne, which is the word for a effeminate homosexual. And, no critic has ever actually explained what that's about. And Pound was even asked when he was 89 or 88 what he meant. And he either made something up or he'd forgotten because it actually says on the, ed the notes of the manuscript of the Wasteland, which was edited by Valerie Elliott, Elliott's widow who lived till 2012. She says, Pound said this, but nothing has ever been found to authenticate what he said. And it's an open question what that meant. And it, it was probably him signaling his inside knowledge on the manuscript that, of the gender of the girl. And Eliot often appears in the poem in non-binary form. He's Tiresias, the transgender prophet from Greek myth. He's the hyacinth girl. The end lines are a coded kind of transsexual, non-binary, non-normative expression so this is like the gay thing that everyone's kind of obsessed with gender now like it's the greatest poem in american history has got it all recorded in there so it's right there but everyone's pretending it's not which is mad and it's like the whole literary yes. order is built on that so that's the it's mind-blowing that's the curious part isn't it that's the thing that you find really shocking uh it's not that it's not that t.s Eliot was gay and it's not that he he became uncomfortable later in life with the idea of his gayness being exposed 
it's rather that there seems to have been a, well, for want of a better word, a conspiracy of silence, mm. or more than silence, among yeah, literary a, critics who must know about this. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So, so what's going on? Yeah, so two things, I think. On the one hand, there's people who just have no idea, and that's amazing in itself, in a way. They're poring over the poem, and they're writing about it, and they're writing PhDs, and they're writing books and biographies. And they're not part of any specific conspiracy or something, but they still somehow just can't get onto the basic subject. And maybe it's because, you know, this is quite, for it to be simple and for the actual explanation to be found and given would uh, embarrass and discredit um, the, the practice of literary academia itself, because this is the mon, you know, the T.S. Eliot's the kingpin, and this is the the prime example of what literary academic criticism is all about, and and so they don't want it explained, perhaps, and it would show everyone, it would embarrass everyone, it would show a fiasco. So they're busy doing their thing and making it complicated and just with their head in the sand. And then there's the second aspect, which is that there's, there's been, um, you know, I'm reluctant to, to do anything, say anything which could, you know, have repercussions or say the wrong things or defame someone or something like that, you know, but I, I mean, there's, there's the official kind of, um, well, uh, official cover up, I would say, um, that's, uh, follows from the Elliot left instructions to be follow his instructions that he left in a time when it was, when, when you couldn't, couldn't be gay, it was criminalized. And so there's a legacy there um, because of his position in the literary establishment, which is he's sort of the, the keystone or the, the, the big figure in the literary establishment even today. And there are practical reasons why, um, uh, there's continued to be a certain narrative told about T.S. Eliot from within the establishment. Um, he he married his secretary in old age and gave her instructions to um, fulfill his wishes. And she lived till 2012. That's Valerie Eliot. So um, Valerie Eliot performed the official scholarship herself, like uh, editing the manuscript of The Wasteland when it emerged in 1968 and she published it as a book in 1971 she forbade people to use Eliot's copyrights except under her uh, with her permission or under her watch and she published the guidebooks through Faber and Faber where she was his secretary for decades and um, not only that she actually owned Faber and Faber the publishing company which Eliot helped set up um, she owned 50% of that and 50% of that is owned by the Elliot estate today. Um, basically, you know, cats is, is the answer and, to this. Yeah, well, you... Yes, well, tell me about cats. Tell me about the okay, cats connection. So, so maybe Elliot is best known today or most popular uh, for his cat poems. Old Possum's Book of Practical Cats, where we there's Macavity and... Uh, Skimble Shanks, or people will know them from the musical Cats. So in, in the early 80s, 
um, Andrew Lloyd Webber adapted Eliot's cat poems into the musical Cats, which became a huge blockbuster. In fact, by 2000, it was the most successful musical of all time and had the longest run and um, it was hugely lucrative. Uh, the royalties from the lyrics went to Valerie Elliott um, because she was the owner of the copyrights and she had uh, given Lloyd Webber permission to, to make the musical. So um, with this uh, fortune, she was able to acquire 50% stake of Faber and Faber. So now Elliott's position as a, he was a director at the company and now his legacy was sort of secured because she was um, in charge and she also owned 50% of the company. So she could um, influence the, the narrative that was put out through the web of connections that come from Faber and Faber into the critics of, of, and the poets who are Britain's literary establishment. Faber and Faber is, you know, an establishment British company. They've had the last four poets laureate, um, 13 winners of the Nobel Prize for Literature, Elliot yeah. was the first of that. Um, so the narrative has been controlled, um, run by Valerie. Um, she lived till 2012 and um, there's all that money and she didn't have any children. So that's now managed. Um, the details have never really been public um, or there's, you know, maybe they are public to an extent, um, but, you know, no one's trumpeting it. Um, and so her legacy is continued today by the Elliott estate. They're pledged, I suppose, to, um, you know, present Elliot the way she did, which is, you know, perfectly understandable. Um, so, uh, that helps to explain the narrative that we're getting from, uh, Faber and Faber and, you know, people around yeah. the critical so, establishment. So no one is going to dare rock the boat. They're because, implicated because in Because Faber way. and Faber is the tastemaker. Sorry? They're implicated in, in a certain Faber way. Faber and Faber. Um, mm, and, 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 it's, and the people involved, the people it publishes yeah. and the critics who have perhaps worked with Valerie, um, you know, they're they're implicated in a certain uh, perspective that's difficult for them to challenge or or um, there's by implicated I mean they're they're sort of that's their point of view and they've held to that and it, it's very difficult to reverse that now um, without saying you yes know, that you've been wrong the, before you know. So it'd need a very sudden overhaul for something They've, like that to come come out and change, you know, because this has been the view for decades. Um, and the narrative is coming from, uh, you know, Elliot's the leader, you know, the, and his, his, um, his poetry and his style maybe is part of the brand even um, of highbrow literature that they're, that they're promoting. So, um, they're still putting out books of explanatory well, that's notes it. about Elliot that that um, are very old-fashioned, let's say, and uh, they're just not really interested in um, digging up 
and looking in in a forensic way what what it's really about in fact they they they've told me when i've asked to quote elliot that they oppose on elliot's behalf um explanation that kind of explanation of the wasteland um although that was some years ago i don't know times have changed maybe they would change their opinion um but that does explain why they're not explaining it themselves i think there's a misunderstanding over there they don't know what it's really about and they seem to be committed in principle not to not to explaining the poem along those those lines which i think is a mistake but yeah well, well yeah well, but tell me how how you became personally involved in this why do you why do you care what's what mm. tell me the story about why you yeah so um uh, I may have mentioned at the beginning there was a professor at Oxford who um, who encouraged me to study Eliot. He um, there was a special authors paper that was coming up, um, which you have to choose. A, you know, one of the the kingpins of big names in in English literature, and Eliot was on the list. And then, either arbitrarily or for other reasons, Wordsworth, Professor Wordsworth was his name. He was a re- relative of. Uh, of William Wordsworth and an eminent um, scholar, he um, he encouraged me to study the Wasteland manuscript, and I was very reluctant to do that. But he kept telling me that it was worth pursuing, and he even said things about Pound, which I now look back on and said that Pound was actually it was a joint effort. But Pound to me was just this uh, crazy poet who was convicted of. Uh, or not convicted, but imprisoned in an insane asylum and, and was indicted for treason by the US government. So he was an anti-Semite. You know, what What did I want to do with him? Nothing. And um, But Wordsworth, I trusted. He said that that didn't really come into it. And so I did um, study Eliot. And then Wordsworth suggested I go and find John Peter's essay um, on the wasteland from the 1960s. Uh, saying that that there was a theory that he remembered that it was a love poem for a man. So I had to do a double take when Wordsworth said that because it just didn't compute at all. How could how could the wasteland, which we talked about how it was introduced, you know, as a name dropping, uh, clever poem, uh, or sorry, not a name dropping, a um, where you where you sort of feel smug about finding some quotations that you recognised. When I knew yeah, it like that, off. how could it be a love poem? And for a man, did he mean a gay love poem? It wasn't even clear at first. And then Wordsworth said, yeah, it seemed, that seemed to be the point. Eliot used his solicitors to have the essay suppressed. So that was the beginning of my um, following the trail. And I managed to find Peter's essay. And when I found Peter's essay that had been written originally in 1952, suppressed by T.S. Eliot and reprinted in 1969. I read it and realized, well, this is so obviously right. I went back to Wordsworth and I said, well, how come, how come you know about this and it's not already proven and, and sort of part of history and, and well-known? And he didn't really have an explanation for that. And he, um, he sort of said, no one would care, actually, what, what the poem's about. He was kind of uh i i suppose defeatist about that and perhaps he's right but um to me it seemed 
as a young, as a 20-year-old or 21-year-old, it seemed incredible that, that this poem and everything that had been said about it could really be a kind of pretentious nonsense. And it was actually something that could make sense to everyone and was poetry uh, and emotional. And, a, and it could really, in a sense, encode Eliot's love for a man and a, a real person. It sounded like cinema to me. So I felt somehow obliged to prove it. And um, the essay didn't have the evidence, just a kind of paraphrase of the poem from beginning to end in a very convincing way. So I started to look into the details because by now it had been decades since Peter's essay had been published. And there was just no mention of it in the shelves and shelves of books about T.S. Eliot um, at all. So it was just a unique situation, mind-blowing situation. So I just started to, to, I wrote my dissertation on that subject. So that was the beginning. And then that dissertation got a mysteriously very average grade, even though it was better than my other papers. So I just put it behind me. Um, but later I came across it. I looked at T.S. Eliot again. I really? Mature, more mature. Yeah. And who knows what happened to that? But I have my ideas. But I kind of came back to it later and looked at it with fresh eyes and more maturity and said, this is actually a love poem for a man. It's like some kind of movie. Nobody knows. And so I started to research it very thoroughly and decided to gather up all the evidence because so much evidence has been found by um, scholars and readers and just the members of the public over the decades, get all of it and just plug it into the poem and prove what it means to everyone and write a book for every man. Um, and so that's what I did. It took me some time and it ended up being, I mean, it's never been published. Um, I don't think, you know, it's never really been put before really? anyone. Yeah. So that was years ago. And, um, what do you think it's just been squashed? They, they, did they give you an advance and then just not publish it? No, I mean, it's just never gone before. It's, it's, it's amazingly hard to get a book published. Um, you know, people don't take, yeah, sure. don't listen, read your emails. They don't take you seriously. They, and we're talking about in the mid two thousands that I wrote that 2006. Um, and there was just, nobody wanted to know. You know about a gay you know this yeah but how long did it take you to do this stuff um took me it didn't take me that long uh like a year and it took me i mean all of the evidence is a lot of it's been compiled in certain guidebooks right but but there it's just overweighted with extraneous information that's like obfuscatory sort of all the academic information that's ever been found and then leave out the bits that are most that, that point in a gay direction and then collect all the wrong stuff and then publish that as a guidebook. Right. And the dedication is to Valerie Elliott for her help compiling this book. Um, maybe misquoting that, but if you go to the acknowledgements page, you realize, OK, so this yeah. is this guidebook was created by Valerie Elliott. And there's like almost like a disclaimer acknowledging her. So the official books, which are still on sale are actually obfuscating 
the answer, the simple explanation that would explain it to people. And then they're still being published. And so I just used those books and all the other stuff that I could find as I looked in directions that she wasn't looking um, and mm. compiled it all and then said about how can I, how can I make this readable to it, to people so they don't get bogged down in scholarship and find it really boring, you know? And I mean, you know, I wrote a first draft that was really long because I thought I had to debunk all of the other professors and out overrule that piece of information. You know, I got a bit too deep into it. So it never reached that final draft stage where you send out and then it's so exciting to publishers yeah. that they want to pick it up. And at that stage I was in my, you know, mid twenties. Um, and I just kind of like, you know, this is where it becomes more like my story. I ended up uh, in remote Cornwall uh, just trying to survive financially. And then I took a plane to Australia and I didn't come back for 12 years. I got caught in the pandemic after 10. And when I came back, I realized they were making documentaries about Emily Hale being the hyacinth girl that are just nonsense and just absurd. And meanwhile, there's a gay flag flying from every Oxford college and times have changed. But I've just been in a time. It was like coming back to the future from from being cast away for for 10 or 12 years. And uh, and there's still no voice for me. You're the only person who paid any attention to me. So it's just people just. <laughs> yeah, you know, well, uh, th that's because. The, 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 in, in the in the freaks community it's quite it, it's it's kind of a lonely place i mm. i'm i'm open to i'm open to ideas and uh, i mean look my James, my I'm starting i know it very well I, yeah for which no I, I i i don't believe you're wrong here's the thing the reason i find this stuff interesting is because I've come in the last three years, I've come to the conclusion that almost everything we are told is a lie or a misdirection at best. Um, that, that if there is an official narrative about something, it means normally that there is a, a, a true a true story underneath which they are in, in some way trying to suppress. And our entire system is like that. I mean, it's interesting when you were talking about um, Ezra Pound, I don't know whether you've thought about this, but. You, you reminded me that Ezra Pound was was involved with the other preeminent work of the modernist movement, Ulysses, Joyce's Ulysses. Mm. So you've got the same guy pushing Ulysses and, and the Wasteland, basically inventing modernism and literature. Mm. Those are the two, the, the two preeminent works. And then you start thinking, well, what was modernism about? Modernism, among other things, was doing the same thing in the early 20th century that later popular music would do in the, from the 50s onwards, which was to, to create a generational divide, to, mm -hmm. uh, to, to annoy people uh, and, and, and to, to reshape culture in, in a kind of awkward direction where people were discouraged from, from trusting things that, that have been accepted in the past and, and looking for the new, looking for the novel. Mm. So I would ask, I would be asking myself, I don't know whether you've looked into this, who the hell was Pound? 
What? Mm. Like, okay, so he did time. You know, we we know he was anti-Semitic, whatever that means. We mm. know that he was a sort of fascistic. Maybe he did he did time. He's locked up. But this could just be a cover story. I mean, what what, what do mm-hmm. we know about Pound's right well, origins? I'll, I'll, I'll try and clear maybe up. Maybe he was he was put there to push modernism. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if everything is a lie. That could be true. I know what's a lie in the area that I know about, right? And there's a lot of stuff that just a muddle and a mistake, right? In this area. And I can, t- I can try and clear up Pound and yeah. is a very interesting figure. If you've never heard of Pound, he was like, you know, you were saying modernism is shaking things up. I would say Pound is the guy who shook things up. He was the guy who made sure that modernism happened. And he anoint, he was the kingmaker. And he made, he, he helped those people who had talent yeah. and put them in the position to break through like that. Now, how did he end up in these, you know, he didn't get the credit he deserved for T.S. Eliot or for The Wasteland. And he set up these guys as as greats um but especially Eliot I mean Eliot was his creation if you like and um that's not to say Eliot didn't deserve his his popularity or wasn't extremely talented Pound found him um but he 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 gave him that leg up now Pound didn't get the same recognition and um he ended up uh, in obscurity and to compensate for that he uh when he, he he moved to italy which became fascist in the early you know mid 20s and he just lost the plot over there and in seeking the kind of fame that he deserved on a literary level on parity with eliot just for making eliot and for make, helping to make Joyce, or just thinking that he deserved fame equal with Eliot. Maybe Eliot didn't deserve that that kind of status because, in fact, Pound did put him there. Pound just went for that level of um, of recognition by um, declaring support for the fascists, and he started attacking America over Rome Radio. Uh, he he. He managed to get himself, while seeking the fame, uh, the literary fame that he probably deserved, he managed to uh, come up with these crazy anti-Semitic theories and get himself into a lot of hot water. And then what happened to him was they he was indicted for treason. No one, no one in the American public had really heard of Pound, but he became infamous because he was indicted for treason. Then he became a kind of poster boy for the enemy during the war with the fascists. And he was over in in fascist Italy um, looking like he supported the fascists and he was mad. And then he, they, they, they captured him in Italy. They declared him insane, which allowed meant he didn't have to face trial. There was a huge uproar Then he was put in an asylum and then he was awarded America's highest poetry prize for verse written while apparently insane in, in the asylum. And Elliot was on the judges who gave him that award on the judging panel. And so that created an uproar. No one could understand it. And so it does really go Pound's whole experience. His madness goes back to him being uh, sort of an equal partner in the creation of the wasteland. 
and not getting that recognition. The only way to explain what happened to him and how he ended up like that is to acknowledge that he launched a kind of a fraud, really, on Elliot's behalf. It was the wasteland, you know, expresses Elliot's love for a man, you know, in a camouflage way. Pound was the one who who sold it as this modernist thing, which then took off uh, under, under false, you know, it was missold. It was sold under false pretenses and Pound got carried away and never got recognized and then tried to gain back recognition by um blaming the jews for economic things and he, he just he ended up a nut and he um but yeah, the answer he, to that is in his you original know what, alex mm. uh, i don't know if you've ever come across um a podcast series uh by the sheep farm boys sheep sheep farm podcast where they do deep dives into the the histories of of people like well they did a very good one on on George Orwell right was he even real because there's this the, the, he's a there's only about two photographs of George Orwell and it and, mm. and it's it's very very odd and, and there are all sorts of anomalies for example when he when he he went off to Scotland and came back mm. having written either 1984 or the or, or animal farm i think his sister um or, or somebody commented this this sounds nothing like nothing like george would have written that that anyway right. I, I i forget the details but yeah, it's worth looking into ezra pound sounds to me like a classic example of a change agent that right when you said there are aspects of his story that don't make sense that the stuff about being in Italy, being tried for treason, but got getting off because of insanity, mm. pleading insanity, and being awarded this 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 prize. Mm. This, you, okay. modernism was not some natural organic thing that sprung out of. It had to be invented. It had to be. You needed a tastemaker, a kingmaker, just like Faber and Faber became a kingmaker. Mm. You need the you need these yeah. things to push the underlying agenda. Yeah. So on the surface, okay. you've got modernism. Oh yeah, it's a reaction to the Victorians or whatever. But actually, mm. it's not really what it's about. It's about something else. These things these things are manufactured. I think. Okay. Well, I would say that's true. You I don't may disagree, know. but I think it's worth well, looking into. Yeah. Okay. But I, I feel that you know all I can tell you is 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 maybe. You know, maybe it's a bit literary for many people, but I mean, there's this guy Pound. He he is the tastemaker. He's the mover and shaker. He manufactures T.S. Eliot. He never gets his recognition. He ends up barking mm. mad and becomes infamous, accusing uh, the Jews of financial conspiracy. And that's why he's important. And he's going to break broker peace between Roosevelt and Japan. And that's who Pound thinks he is. He thinks he's the most important man in the world and he's um given the microphone by the fascists and this madman is brought in and treated sympathetically by the um by the US army psychiatrist because they can see there's something more to this story you know and he's not just a fascist villain he's something else he's this eccentric poet who's well connected and what's happened here and they can't get to the bottom of it but the way you get bottom the bottom of it is TS Eliot's behind the crime TS Eliot has gotten away with 
an illusion, which Pound helped him. He's McCavity, you're saying. And they, yeah, yeah, he's a brilliant illusionist. And he's, yeah, in a way you could say he's just like McCavity. McCavity is actually Professor Moriarty from Sherlock Holmes. Elliot plagiarized. Well, Elliot plagiarized a description of, of Professor Moriarty from Sherlock Holmes stories and in word for word to create McCavity. So Elliot worked in ways like that people don't know, you know, and he, like I said, he's the hyacinth girl. And a hundred years later, people think it's Emily Hale, who is one of his beards, you know, so there's way more genius going on here, Yeah, but it's of a different kind than people think. And Pound collaborated in the illusion that made Elliot great. Pound got the raw end of the prawn. He ended up over there in Italy and he only got his fame when he got convicted or he got indicted for treason and put in an insane asylum in Washington from DC for, for how long was it? 12 years or something. And, um, Elliot led the judges who gave him yes. the Bollingen prize, um, which created an outrage. So pound got some recognition, but he was nuts by then. And it couldn't be undone. Things couldn't be undone that had happened. And Elliot, escape detection and um he still has and he set things up he was powerful enough that that he could get people as his accessories and he laid chinese whispers among his supporters in the critics who have sent lyndall gordon even now on a 50-year excursion in the wrong direction to think that emily hale was who elliot was in love with but lyndall gordon who wrote the hyacinth girl which is the book now out um she was brought in by one of Elliot's I, I don't know what you'd call Dame Helen Gardner this critic who was close to Elliot who she brought Lyndall Gordon into Oxford years ago in the 70s I think it was and um uh Lyndall waited 50 years for Emily Hale's Elliot's letters to, to Emily Hale to be unsealed which was in the papers in 2020 after 50 years they were unsealed and Elliot had a note at the top saying there never was a love affair between them. So people had waited for this literary event of the decade and there was just nothing to be found. <laughs> and then, so then Lyndall Gordon went and wrote a book saying there was anyway, because she probably was that, she spent 50 years on her theory waiting for that. And now that is the story pushed by the BBC. But like, if, the B, if people knew what was really going on, the BBC would have to withdraw that program, apologize and make another one because there would be an outrage. Because it's tramping all over LGBTQ history, and that's the real situation. Well, nobody, nobody. It's too no, big. Nobody for listening to, to this podcast would, would expect expect anything other than the BBC to be promoting lies about everything. I was thinking, just I was, I was just reminding myself while you were talking about what a great borrower. Elliot was, or I mean, you know, talent borrows, genius steals, and he was a, he was mm. a, a literary thief, wasn't he? So he was. his famous poem about the journey of the Magi, which mm. is often quoted at Christmas and often read out at Christmas at, at school Christmas carol concerts and things, and and that was lifted wholesale. Well, the, the first few lines were lifted from a, a sermon by right. Lancelot Andrews, who was right, who yeah. was the the main translator of the king james bible mm. so and, and he's yeah i mean one way of putting this is he's richly elusive 
that, that he's mm. just very well read and he's and he's referencing all these these authors another another he's a great plagiarist he's just just ripping off right left and center i mean i'm a fan of elliot i i i i i haven't learned the wasteland but i i learned the first of the of the four quartets by heart a while ago and I, and i i enjoy it it's it, it's it's great and burnt norton um mm. so i'm not trying to diss elliot mm. but I think what you say about the the Elliot industry is well, maybe it's esoteric for some of too esoteric for some of some of my viewers and listeners. But I think a lot of people are going to be interested. Now, I want you to tell, take me really down the rabbit hole okay. and tell me about um, your other other stuff. Tell me about about Harry Potter. You just mentioned yeah. this out of the blue before we <laughs> did the podcast, and I thought well, this sounds interesting. Well, in some ways, you know. I'm reluctant to, to to bring it up in some ways because you know there's one uh, sort of empirical, scientific, or literary thing on one side, you know, which I think you know requires evidence and proof, and 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 I'm serious about that. Yeah. Then there's a, a mystical side that's that's uh, that's T. S. Eliot, and then there's me. And when I followed Professor Wordsworth's uh, trail down the rabbit hole. Ultimately, I ended up in a place where I had to contemplate, how did I get here? Who is this T.S. Eliot? Because I thought that I was just going to show that this this poem was about a love, love for a man. And I ended up with this kind of nemesis who was able to pull off these illusions and this ambiguous stuff. And I'd... And I'd and I took him on in a way to try and I thought that I was doing him a favor because he was gay. And I was, I was, you know, in, in a time of more justice, I was bringing this out and I ended up coming up against the conspiracy or cover up that he'd left a, the legacy of that, that he'd set up. And then I ended up in a tent in Australia, you know, in my late twenties, looking at what had happened to me over the previous years and how I got involved in so much confusion, this diabolical cloud of confusion had just descended on me and everyone was confused. Nobody could figure out what had happened mm -hmm. to me. And it's like I'd been wiped out. And then um, I sort of came to a religious realization when I was in Bali in a remote place. I, I, I basically gave up the Elliot thing and I was surfing and just kind of like, um, ended up where I ended up after getting some teaching work overseas and um, with a fresh perspective on it um, I came to this I will say realization although I know people won't believe me and that doesn't really matter but I came to the realization that my own life ha was tied into the Harry Potter stories <laughs> which sounds completely mad but um, yeah. I came to the realization this fable actually overlaps with real life and not just my life, but just events that have happened. And um, this came, but I mean, it's hard to, to, to say exactly how you, how you come to that kind of understanding, but um, I just recognized those stories and some of the things that I'd been through and you wouldn't really be able to see it unless you were there and it, and it happened to you, I guess. But I recognized intuitively something in those stories and could see that Rowling had somehow 
tapped into something that that was really going on and there is you know basically T.S. Eliot in some way that's hard to explain is Voldemort and there is a Voldemort and I realized Wordsworth is like a Dumbledore and those things were shot at Oxford and I'd gone through something including starting at boarding school which was connected to what J.K. Rowling was writing about and it's if you like it's a kind of a psychic thing she came up with these stories on a train they just landed in her head and she came up with the casual vacancy on a on a on a plane she said now you 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 wouldn't expect you know and it was well, through a religious this is the sorry. we got a delay it's kind of i don't i don't discount any of what any any of what you're saying but you so let, let me go on a bit more so it's you a bit more probably convincing. won't have come across yeah go on then tell me okay so and i'll tell you what i know or, or okay. rather what i've heard okay so um you know elliot was this christian poet and a uh, very spiritual man and you know there's sort of spooky stuff I would, you know, some, some critics described him as demonic and there's some spooky stuff that I basically I went through, which made me associate him with Voldemort and, but not in the sense of like, you know, you might think, oh, he's like Voldemort. I mean, he literally is somehow connected to Voldemort. There are events that happened in, you know, around and just after the time the Harry Potter books were coming out that match kind of the story of Voldemort with his upper class conspiracy of followers uh how he sort of you know denied love and sought immortality well i found a connection there um i guess with my life if you want to debunk if you want to sort of not believe it but i also um and some people will believe it you know some people have open enough mind if they're told more to get that but and i i felt that it had something to do with christianity and that um and anything's actually possible when you when you really have some kind of religious belief and i don't mean just believing whatever you whatever you want i mean once you have a spiritual belief and i'm sure many viewers do and can believe things well at a certain point jk rowling came out with the casual vacancy and this is her first book after harry potter it came out in 2012 and it again i I felt like the connection to T.S. Eliot continued out of beyond Harry Potter into that, because that is set in the village where T.S. Eliot is buried. Um, and the plot is like the events that happened there around that time. However, she can't have based the book on that because that only, only came out six months later. And she said she came up with it years earlier on a, on a plane and you know T.S. Eliot is buried in this village called East Coker in Somerset and near Yeovil and Rowling set her book in a village near Yarville which is based on Yeovil and the book is about divisions between people who live social divisions between people who live in a housing estate and the and the normal villagers and in a few months before it came out um, there was a protest that made the news in East Coker, T.S. Eliot's village, 
in, which is in the same place uh, of a housing estate, just like the one in the book. So it's sort of faint, but if you know T.S. Eliot like I know T.S. Eliot, then and then you see that okay, so this Voldemort, as you've as I've come to know, he is is now like Rowling is now writing a book set in the village where T.S. Eliot is buried, like precisely geographically. And the plot is similar. I just feel that whatever ghostly thing this is, it goes, it was a kind of, I would say proof, you know, to me um, that. <laughs> how how is the crazy thing? Sorry. Um, that just that they're just this housing estate stuff, you know, well, that, how, how... That... Mm. well, so I, I get, I get that it's set in the same village that, that, mm. uh, T.S. Eliot's buried in, but what, what, beyond that, how is it, how does it refer to? Well, she wasn't expected to write a book, um, about village life, let's say for a start. Um, that was an unexpected book, The Casual Vacancy. It's quite um, pedestrian, if you will. You know, people are used to her writing about wizards and, and I mean, she's right. gone on to write detective stories. Um, she wrote, she set a book in, uh, she wrote a book about, well, what happened in the housing estate in, in real life was the richer villagers protested against the creation of a housing estate for, you know, I don't what's the word they use, you know, for less well-off people um, in East Coca. And Elliot was brought into that because Elliot is buried in the village. So Sir Andrew Motion, um, you know, p people who are around Elliot and the supporters of Elliot from Faber and Faber were part of the protest. Yeah. So Elliot's, you know, the Voldemorty followers came out against the building of this housing estate and in, right. in real life. And then Elliot in real life is buried in East Coker because his bloodline, which is again quite Voldemorty, goes back to 16 something when his ancestor left to America. So Elliot is this symbol of um, ah. inherited privilege and bloodlines and he's a fake you know he's american it's not even english and he got himself you know buried there with a grave waiting for his widow who would keep up his legacy and keep things going and the truth wouldn't come out and um then in the book it's like the same kind of social dilemma that she's writing about which nobody expected and were probably quite bored by even though it sold you know millions and millions of millions of copies well if you read that i can all i can tell you is there's a real weird thing going on where there's a real kind of voldemort for britain there's a there's a, the most famous poet of the 20th century america's greatest poet wrote about his love for a man in a illusion camouflage contorted way which made him come across as the next kind of Da Vinci genius. And he kept that hidden. And there's a conspiracy of people around him who keep that hidden now, which is kind of like Rowling's fable. And you, you ask her, 
if she knows or gets any kind of inkling of Alex Little. And I'm going to say that Rowling is going to come round to the fact that there is a connection between her books and real life and T.S. Eliot and me and Professor Wordsworth and everything I've told you. I don't know if she'll ever get a chance, you know, we'll ever reach her. I'm... Well, that's... that's, I I think you've sort of put a breadcrumb trail, which Mm. people could follow, but it's not... But I think the birds it's a, could easily peck away those breadcrumbs at this yeah, point. It's not... Well, I think it's, it's, it's some sort of God thing here, some kind of message from God, but it's it's, it's hard to get across in a podcast. Well, you... you see, look, Alex, I, I'm with you. I'm I'm with you on this because the, the, I I had a, a sort of similar late lateish life conversion in the last three years, and I think that 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 the scales do fall from your eyes when you have an experience like this and 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 you you get insights that perhaps you wouldn't otherwise have had and you do get connected to well mm. to god basically uh and you realize that you that that, that that you understand your your life and its purpose much better mm. than you did did before when, when you were just flailing around trying yeah. to find meaning from it so, so I'm, I'm this I'm is totally not really a there. literary quest um, it's some sort of religious quest that i that i that that I went on that's it's sort of beyond the literary discussion of T.S. Eliot and their, the literary world there. It's something that sort of should be going to young people and to people to show them what's possible, you know, not just that this LGBT thing that, that, that Eliot registers and that, you know, the critics have sort of got this mistaken. It's that there's a love poem, a famous love poem, uh, sorry, a famous poem. It's a love poem for a man they make movies about things like that, but this is in reality really happening. And there's also another element where there's a mystical element and a religious element to that, where you can pull back a veil. If you understand all of this, you can pull back a veil and you can see heaven's design uh, and some kind of, you know, religious, you know, if you can accept that or you can, come to see that there's there's a connection between those books and real things that have happened then you're really uh seeing something exceptional and i don't know if anyone else can can follow it but i've seen it you know and i believe in it totally right. so there's two sides of course there's the like i still i don't so, want to i don't want to muddy the water with my religious thing and then people don't believe what i'm saying about the facts and evidence in Eliot's verse no, it's a game of two halves, Alex. The, 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 there's the, the first part where we talk about, you know, the Eliot was the the wasteland is a gay love poem, uh, and but then we can move on to the really down the rabbit hole stuff where mm. you explain that T. S. Eliot is actually Voldemort. Although mm. I I do see <laughs> I do see flaws in in, in this theory mm. in in as much as well Eliot was a Christian. I don't think mm. Voldemort was a Christian, but uh, I'm open mm. to the possibility that that, that, that that may have been a cover. Um, and it's interesting what you say about bloodlines, um, that, which is, a, as you, as you say, it's a very, it's a very, um, uh, death eaters type thing. It's also a very sort of conspiracy theory type thing. Yeah. I, mean, I think know, it's more about me well, hearing you say it back. I don't think Elliot is. Yeah. Sorry. Hearing you, excuse me, say it back. 
is quite interesting. You know, for me to hear you say T.S. Eliot as Voldemort, it sounds preposterous. So I hear how I will sound um, in a sense. But, you know, and perhaps, you know, it's, it's more about there are the two different sides, as you say, game of two halves. There's that that stuff is more about the journey I went on and what that can offer people and what people might learn from that. Or it's interesting in itself. And then there's another side which is all about T.S. Eliot, which is, you know, what the evidence in the poem are. Um, yeah. Well, I think what I'm trying to do more is to encourage you to have the courage of your convictions. You see, unlike most people um, who, who who would talk to you, you're, you're, you're talking to somebody who actually is completely open to this mm. kind of crazy stuff. I mean, you know, I, 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 I want to sort of subject it to a certain amount of critical rigor insofar as it's possible to apply critical rigor to something so esoteric and possibly spiritual um look i mean the 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 could be there could be parallels there's i mean there's all sorts of stuff you may not be aware of about about the the whole the harry potter thing i mean there are those Mm -hmm. who say um that no no literary, no. Well, I don't know whether literary is the right word. No, no book series would ever have have achieved such prominence if it did not have a um, a purpose beyond its ostensible function, which is to entertain kiddies. Yeah. Entertain kiddies. That actually, there are those who say that really it is to to implant it to to corrupt our culture, particularly children with with notions about black magic and wizards mm. and warlocks and stuff and and to take them away from from the christian message which which, mm. would, which would be very much my view and, right. and perhaps perhaps could be yours as a christian I've too i of mean it. there's this this mm. it, it well mm. it's undoubtedly had a deleterious influence on our on our on our, our children's culture and the fact that it's become mm. this phenomenon i think is is very suspicious now mm. there's a there's a a, a, a person, an alleged person. He's probably he's probably a, a, a collection of people who 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 blogs under the name of of Miles Mathis. Miles Mathis is probably not a person, but probably he, he, I've had I've heard it suggested that he's actually a kind of a CIA disinformation um, operation, and that one of the things that these disinformations do is that they're called limited hangout where they they give you a certain amount of true information and muddy the waters with false information so so that the people like me and possibly you can look at this stuff and go hey this is really interesting uh, that makes sense uh but they but they put in enough disinformation for for, for you not not to be sure what right. the truth is and what not but the mathis mathis person collective whatever it is has posited that 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 J.K. Rowling, Joanne Rowling, was just a front. Mm. Uh, that she actually comes from one of the the bloodlines families, and that she was chosen to rep to 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 put this stuff together, which had been, and the story about it coming to her on a, a train. According to Mathis, it was dictated to her by one of the Mitford sisters. Um, did, mm. this it had all been been plotted out. Now I I I can't vouch for this. How how could one possibly? Maybe maybe she really did write it in a cafe in in Edinburgh or whatever. But mm. there is definitely something about the the whole 
um, Harry Potter series. A phenomenon of it. Which doesn't make sense. I agree. I agree Uh, now. I mean, the reception, the critical reception. Yeah. Do you mean the critical reception or just the huge popularity of it? I mean, the critics are not, we're not. Everything. Right. Everything about it. So I'm going to, I mean, I don't know about what you're saying, I can say what, you know, the way I formulated it from putting myself in the middle of it, some people would just say, uh, like, an, you know, I would, uh, you know, the way I looked at it was that um, it took off. I think it was written by J.K. Rowling. I don't know why do things take off like that. Um, it's definitely not something that as an author, she kind of, you know, tried to accomplish or expected to accomplish. Obviously, she faced a lot of criticism for um, writing about black magic. And, but, you know, I, I don't know. Oh, if she I... didn't though, Alexander. Mm. Come on, that, that, that's, that's, that's nonsense. She, she's had very little, I very little. beginning, but now um, not. You know, she's established that. part of culture. Very little. Yeah. I think, you know, the Christian right originally. I mean, no, I, I just I don't, think I, look. There could be a Christian purpose in it, oh, what you know, in the success right? of, of those books. Um, no way. No? Well, what if they are, do have a, a resemblance with well, real life, which is more important than books about wizards and witches? And that it's, you know, there is a real life thing that in the fabric, of, you know, of life that is tied, you know, if people could see that there's real events and our real world is represented in those books then people would be able to see a supernatural dimension that that we're we're part of some other consciousness that's um around that's watching us and and when you know that and you can if they are uh connected to real events then and the purpose behind it is 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 a christian one then you know, that's there for people to see. I mean, well, it's obvious. It's purpose. I mean, I, I, yeah, well, I think it goes without saying that 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 the, the purpose is a Christian one. I mean, I think that's a, for me that's a given. I I would say that if I were your if I were your um your tutor at mm. what college were you at? St Catherine's. What What was your college? St Catherine's. Okay. So if I were your tutor at St. Cat's, mm. I would be saying, Alexander, you've done some really, really interesting um, stuff way above your way above undergraduate level. Mm. And I want you to come back and do a, do a post-grad, but that you really need to firm up some of your ideas because at the moment you're you're kind of expressing them too cautiously and also the, there's, a, there's there's a whole heap of of crazy stuff that you haven't yet grasped right that you've just kind of you're at the beginning of your journey or yeah because because mm. i don't think that what you're saying sounds crazy but i i just don't think that you've you've really grasped the implications of a lot of what you're saying i mean whether right. it's on on pound or on other stuff I, I i mean i think that you, you you've kind of you've intuited it but you haven't you haven't sort of properly said it yet because i don't think you realize just just how 
um sorry to be patronizing but i've got, but this this is this is where i've been for the last 3 years and and it's mm. a crazy place but it's also it's the only way you can understand the world that it is a fabrication i mean mm. it's ironic isn't it that um <laughs> that it was dedicated to emilio fabro um that 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 Eliot was acknowledging that Ezra Pound was a fabricator, that the whole modernist phenomenon was the creation of this guy, that that, that mm. the, the, there is there are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of, uh, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. I think that's what it comes down to. And that was, of course, written by the Earl of Oxford and his scriptorium. That, 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 that literary, literary figures, whether they, they be um, high culture things like T.S. Eliot, or or popular culture things like like JK Rowling they they they're fabrications to a degree so yeah that's, I mean, that's kind of i mean where I, yeah I mean, all i can offer is 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 how is what i know about eliot and pound and how wrong this famous poem has been read um, and how that exposes, you know, when you see that, it's sort of amazing to see a kind of confederacy of dunces there. And, you know, the, the critics um, have, have sort of have got that wrong and they've looked at it the wrong way and, and it's very accessible, really. I mean, I can do that and then all I can offer um, an absolutely potty claim um potty sounding claim that 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 there's an access into something divine that on the journey to try and exposing this that i uncovered this mystery um which is way outside the investigation that that swept me up and it was more about my story and i was the hero of some uh quest or legend almost uh that had Christian, it was like I'd become the knight in the wasteland who has to go for the grail. Like it was living through in real life, a legend, just like those, those legends in myth. Um, and it would, things would happen, yeah. which would allow me to get to the next stage. And I'd be reminded of my purpose. Um, and I was on this thing, this journey. And then I came to the revelation, hang on a second. Like I'm this, unsupposing ordinary person but now i think that this has reached the stage where it, it only makes sense when these harry potter books <laughs> are connected to this guy that i've been tangled up with and it's like i'm going through what harry potter goes through with voldemort and these things are kind of real and i somehow need to get in touch with jk rowling and um, reveal a Christian revelation that's that's coming through her work. So maybe it's not about, not really, maybe the end of it all is not um, black magic and doing things wrong, but maybe there is a Christian purpose working through it that's going to justify that and that it's, these are innocent books for children perhaps that but without the Christian revelation, they're not that innocent. But with the Christian revelation added in, it all makes sense, you know. And that's all I can that's all I can offer. I mean, I don't know what kind of proof people need for such extraordinary claims or if they'll even take an interest. Um 
but that's all that's all like all i can i don't know about think, these other things you know like I, i've been limited to this this thing that i've been focused on you know and just trying to trying to not even get that stuff out. i've forgotten about that you know i'm trying to dig that up out of my memory like where was i 10 years ago in my tent in australia uh kind of feeling like there's something magical going on around me and how am i ever going to get out of this and will anyone believe me you know and what and probably not even being that it's more when you get back to britain and put on some headphones and talk on a podcast that things things which things become incredible when you're actually out there in the third world or in or on in in the midst of life things that are things that are, are very credible all kinds of things you know spiritual things and so well i'm sure i'm sure you'll have you'll have prompted a few yeah well thank you alexander by the way just before we go i'm curious what do you what do you do now um i am a trainee what's your your job english teacher i've been a i've been surviving on the seat but flying by the seat of my pants and surviving for years and I decided to get a respectable uh, qualification. So I am a trainee English teacher who has not yet... Uh, How do you train to be an English teacher? You do a PGCE, postgraduate oh, certificate that's of education. awful. Well, well... Yeah, nightmare. <laughs> they're, they're not real, are they? They're just, it just has to fill your head with bullshit with, so that you can... It's not, it's not about learning how to teach. It's learning how to... Mm. Well, I need the piece Not of paper. Cheap. I need the piece. I'm actually half Australian. Yeah, I know. Poor so, side. <laughs> um, yeah, well, that, that's, that's what I'm doing next Mate. year. That's what Good I'm luck. doing next year. And um, we'll see how it goes, you know? Like, uh, I mean, who knows? Now, I'd like to be an English teacher. I mean, apart from the fact that you'd have to kind of be doing everything, everything but teaching English. But yeah, well, good luck. Yeah, that's, that's um, an issue. Uh, yeah. I think probably... Will have will have frightened off a few people with this podcast with its length and stuff, but other people will have soldiered onto the end and sort of been. I hope there's thought, some yeah, seeds. Well, that was kind of, like, that did was some kind of the of things you, you know, say actually are they true? Yeah, you know? and like you know, it, it, is this is Elliot the hyacinth? I mean, is what he says actually right? Well, how can that be? You know, and what? Oh, I'm sure you wrote about that. I'm sure you wrote about that. It's whether people. Yeah. Whether people care, actually, perhaps. Is that what you're going to say? <laughs> well, so you, you didn't get the book published, but at least you've got this podcast for posterity. Yeah, and I'll right, write I'm going to have a cup now. of tea now. I'm, 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 I'm exhausted. Yeah, okay. Good. Thanks, James. Cheers. All right. All right. Thank you, Alexander. Okay. Um, and don't forget to leave your computer turned on this time.